Well, hey there. Welcome to Hillside Missionary Church Online. We're so excited that you're joining us here today. We truly believe that we are not on your screen by accident, but that we are truly here to help you to grow in your relationship with the Lord wherever you stand with Him today. So here's a huge welcome to Hillside Missionary Church Online. He is for you, he is for you, he is for you, he is for you. 
to be continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke today. So wherever you're following along, whether it be in a paper version of a Bible or the YouVersion Bible app, we really encourage you to follow along today. It's going to be Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 13. And now we are finally getting the first glimpse of Jesus' public ministry. So open up in your Bibles wherever you're following along in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 13. If you are following along in the YouVersion Bible app, as always, we really encourage you to click that More tab, then Events, and follow us along at Hillside Missionary Church. You can find the link if you need that uh, in the description of wherever you're finding this. You can also find a link to our online bulletin, and that's going to give you a lot of resources. Both those things are the exact same thing. Uh, they're going to have the exact same things in them, uh, including the reflection questions, which again, we're really trying to make these uh, videos, or if it's a podcast you're listening to right now, the podcast. Uh, a little bit more participatory. Uh, we're trying to get you to interact with these things a little bit more to help you to grow in your faith. So those reflection questions are a great resource for you here as we dive into God's Word. Follow along with me, if you will. Again, this is uh, right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, last week, we took a look at as he was preparing for this, as uh, he went out into the desert for 40 days, was tempted by the devil, fasted for those 40 days, and now he's finally ready to start his public ministry right here in verse 13. This is what it says. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all of the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it to back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? I want to pause there real quickly. And we'll read through the rest of the passage here in just a moment. But I want to pause here real quickly because this is kind of a strange one. Now, when we're reading through the Bible, you know, you might come to this story and you might say, okay, yeah, this seems familiar. This is Jesus. He's teaching at the synagogue here. I think it's really important to note that that was his custom, that Jesus was, uh, uh, you know, a regular attender of the synagogue. What would typically happen is they would, they would gather, they would pray together, and they would read God's word. It's similar, uh, essentially, to what we do today, that we gather together, we pray, we praise God through songs, and then we read God's word and we talk about it. Back in the synagogue day, what would typically happen is that a regular attender would uh, he would come, he would read what was already picked out for him from the scroll, and then he would expound on that passage of Scripture, teaching it to all the people there. That's Jesus right now. And as, as the custom was, everyone would stand for the Scripture reading, then everyone would sit down, including the teacher. So the teacher would literally pull up a stool or a chair, and as everyone else would sit down, he would sit down as well, and he would begin teaching the Scripture. Now, Jesus does this, but before we get into what he taught, I think it's really important that we know the end of the story. 
Now, this is verse 22. Take a look in verse 28 with me. We're going to skip over five verses, and then we're going to come back to them. Here's the end of this story. It says, When they had heard these things, all, the, uh, sorry, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. All right, I want to ask you a question. We skipped over five verses. We skipped over all of what Jesus taught. What on earth could he have taught that went from people you know, being in awe of him? They were astonished with what he was saying. They were like, whoa, isn't that like Mary and Joe's son? Like, this is, this is crazy. Like, maybe he's the Messiah. That's crazy. What could on earth could, I mean, he say in five verses that would cause people to get so angry with him that they're literally ready to kill him. Well, let's read it together. Starting in verse 23. He said to him, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in our hometown as well. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian. And this is when they say, all right, we're ready to kill you. Now, if you're kind of scratching your head at this point, and you're saying, okay, Jesus like, talked about two Old Testament stories he didn't even read them he just kind of like pulled them out of thin air right like this is kind of strange if you're saying I don't get why people were so upset that here in verse 28 they're literally like ready to kill him well we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about what that means for our lives as well and I got to be honest with you many times when I read this story it's so easy to pass over but you know just studying it and praying about this passage and asking God to just tell me what he would like for me to, to present to you today. Um, I got to say, many times we fall into the same category as, the, as these people did, that we're ready to just throw this all out and be done with Jesus. And we're going to talk about that, what that means for our lives here in just a moment. But before we do, because this is a little bit more of a difficult passage to read for many of us when we really start to unpack it, Let's go before the Lord. Let's ask him to soften our heart to what he has for us today and truly mean it. Just say, God, would you really impact me today? Would you really help me to grow in my relationship with you? Pray with me, if you will. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word, for your story here, for what you did here in this synagogue. And God, as we, as we start to unpack this, we start to talk about what this means for our lives. Would you just help us? Help us to apply this. Help us to not just be people who show up to church or watch church online or listen, God, and, and, and have it not impact our lives. God, we truly want to be people who glorify you with everything that we've got, who are continually growing in our faith. Jesus, help us to do that. Help us to soften our hearts to whatever it is that you have. And God, give us the wisdom and the courage and the strength to be faithful with whatever it is that you're giving to us today. And it's in your precious life-saving name we pray. Amen. Hey, I want to ask you a question as we dive back into this passage. What has your prayer life looked like recently? 
Now, you may say, okay, the frequency or different things like that, but I, I'm a little bit more concerned with content at this point. What has the content of your prayer life looked like? In other words, what dominates it, right? Because we all have these little prayers, you know, you might pray before a meal. Hopefully that's not the only thing dominating your prayer life. But what are those things that you find yourself continually and constantly putting before God and asking of Him? What are those things? What are those things that as, as, if you had to define your prayer life and say your most common prayer, what would it be? What is that most common prayer? Lifeway Research did a study on this. I think it's fascinating. Sorry if the font's a little small here for you to see. But Lifeway Research uh, did a, a study here. The top two were uh, for people who mistreated you or for your enemies. Now, I think that should come to no surprise, right? People are obviously concerned with this. If they're being mistreated, if they think that someone is their enemy, of course they're going to pray for them. And that could come off as, you know, really a, a good prayer, right? I think, though, uh, many times those prayers are pretty self-centered, and here's why. Look at number two and number three. Uh, number th uh, three, I'm sorry, number three and four. Number three, to win the lottery, okay, 21%, and 20% for success in uh, something with which you had put little to almost no effort into, right? I mean, okay, so that's obviously self-centered. My guess is that slots one and two are also pretty self-centered things. Look what comes after that. Uh, your favorite sports team to win a game, uh, to find a good parking space that you wouldn't get caught speeding, right? I mean, these are all pretty self-centered things that uh, people have reported praying for. And you might say, okay, yeah, but like that's not a huge problem, right? Like God wants to hear my heart and, you know, sometimes my heart is focused on me and my life. You know, that's a big chunk of who I am, right? Like there's these things going on in my life and they're really hard sometimes. So God doesn't, doesn't he want to, to hear those things? I would say absolutely. But I would also balance it out by saying this, your prayer life reflects how you think about God. In other words, if all you think God is, is your magic genie or Santa Claus that you get things from, and all you're asking God is for selfish things, God, give me a raise, I want a bigger car, I want a bigger house, I want for this person not to hate me so much, I want for, you know, for uh, me to look good in front of my boss, I, I want success at this thing, which, you know, basically I put no effort into. The only times I'm praying is before a meal or when I'm driving to the mall and it's it's, uh, you know, rush hour or whatever, and I'm, I'm having a hard time finding a parking spot and getting in the, in the parking lot, whatever, whatever that is. I think that that reflects, if, if that's all we're praying for, that reflects how we think of God or what we think of God or how our relationship is with God. You know, I think about adult children, if they only go to their parents when they need money or a babysitter or different things like that, doesn't that reflect something in that relationship? You know, I think our prayer reflects our relationship with the Lord. That what we pray for reflects what we think about God. Here in this passage in chapter 4, the people want something from Jesus. They want something as he, he uh, quotes from Isaiah chapter 61. And again, more than likely, the attendant would have handed this already picked out. And he's just reading from Isaiah 61, which obviously portrays the Messiah, Jesus himself. And then he just cuts people off. He just, I, I already know what you're going to say. 
doubtless, physician, heal yourself, right? Uh, those things you did in Capernaum, we want you to do those things here. So what is Jesus talking about? Because isn't this like just the beginning of his public ministry? What is he talking about? Things that he did in Capernaum. Well, this isn't recorded in the Gospel of Luke, but we find in the Gospel of John, namely the first four chapters of John, that Jesus has already been doing miracles, that he's already started before he's in this region. At the very beginning, he's already doing miracles in Capernaum. And so people more than likely, you know, this is Jesus's hometown. He would have ran around with the other kids. People know him. It's a small town. They would have said, hey, Jesus is doing these things. Mary and Joe's son, like he's overall committing miracles, right? He's, 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 this is crazy. He's doing all these crazy things. And then Jesus opens the scroll and says from Isaiah 61, basically that he is the Messiah. And so people are like, yeah, bring it on, Jesus. This is awesome. The Messiah is coming from my hometown. I got it made. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be sweet. I'm going to, all our problems are solved, right? Like, and uh, you know, like Rome, they've been all up in our grill and you know what? We got the Messiah. So you know what? We're set free. And this is, this is just, this is just great, right? And Jesus, he like stops them in their tracks. He doesn't even let them say it. He goes, surely I know you're going to say this. Don't even start it. Like, don't even start it with the miracle nonsense, right? Like, it's almost like, you know, like a, a dad or a mom who's like anticipating their kids whining for something, right? Don't even start it with the lollipop nonsense, okay? You can have it in the car, right? Like, this is like, he's like, don't even start it, okay? So how does he do this? Like, how does he know that? Well, he is God, obviously. He knows what they're going to say. But more than that, I think he knows their heart and he knows that their heart is off base, he knows that they just do not understand what the Messiah's focus is going to be, what the Messiah is truly there for. Because remember, the people would have had this weird political thing about the Messiah setting them free from Rome. This is nothing that they got from the Old Testament. This is something that they read into the Old Testament, and it was their own opinion of this, but it wasn't something directly from Scripture, and it was something that they wanted to see. And so Jesus, right out the get-go, he just stops them. And it's evident to us as readers that if we read this closely, we see, man, they just didn't get it. These people just did not understand what Jesus was there to do. They did not understand what the Messiah's job was. You know, and so many times we don't understand Jesus. Like we misinterpret what Jesus does. We make it all about us, just like they did, and it's just like not good. You ever just meet a Christian and, you know, you're just like, I don't know, like it just doesn't seem like you get it. it like it just doesn't seem like it's affecting your life. Like it just doesn't seem like you truly understand what's going on here. Like what Jesus is, is it can do for you to, to transform your life. So how does Jesus turn their upside down of the Messiah, or turn their, their understanding of the Messiah completely upside down. Well, he does that by referencing three passages of Scripture. The first one, namely, obviously, this is the one he quotes directly from, and he is reading from the scroll, Isaiah chapter 61, that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Now, this doesn't necessarily get them upset, right? They don't start getting upset until it seems like Jesus starts talking in verses 22 and 23, right? And so it seems like they're okay here. They're after this, they go, oh man, this is Mary and Joe's son, right? Like, man, this is, this is crazy. This is, this is incredible. He's like the Messiah, right? I think the reason that they aren't mad with him yet is because they're misunderstanding what he's saying here. You see, I think they're reading into this passage and saying, man, he, he's here to proclaim liberty to the captives. We're captives under Rome, right? Like we, are, Israel, right? Like Israel's a captive to Rome. Liberty to those who are oppressed. We're oppressed by Rome, right? We get liberty. This is going to be awesome. And then Jesus clarifies what he means by referencing two Old Testament stories. This is where people really start to get mad with him. This is the first story that he referenced. He references this, uh, this in verse 26 when he says, Elijah was set to none of them, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now he says there's, there's lots of widows in Israel, but Elijah was only sent to one. What is he talking about? Well, it's kind of this weird story in 1 Kings 17. I'm not going to get too far into, but l let me just real quickly talk about that story because it's really important to understand what Jesus is saying here. In 1 Kings chapter 17, the prophet Elijah uh, is combating Israel, and Israel is just way off base. They are uh, praising false gods. And so he's forced out of Israel into this uh, place, Zarephath in the land of Sidon, and he's walking along, and there's this widow there picking up sticks. Uh, and uh, presumably to go uh, make a fire and make her dinner. And so what Elijah does is he says, hey, um, you know, allow me to stay with you and eat dinner with you. I, you know, I've just been kicked out of Israel. I, I, I need a place to stay. I need some dinner. Would, would you help me? And the widow, she's like, oh, yeah, right. Like, man, I, we're at the end of our wits here. It's a famine. It, it, was, it was in the middle of a famine here. It's a famine. There's no food here. In fact, uh, basically the only food we have uh, is going to feed me and my son for tonight, and then we're just, we're going to starve to death. This is, this is going to be our last meal. And Elijah asks her and says, hey, why don't you just go in and make it? And you know what? The God is going, God is going to stretch that food out, and he's going to allow you to continue eating off of that food. And she goes, okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll, I'll give it a try. Let's, let, let's do this. She responds out of faith, in other words, and so she's saved because of it. She doesn't die through this famine because she responded to Elijah, the Lord's prophet, out of faith. Now, the reason people would have been so upset with this is because women in the Old Testament, I mean, they're pretty low on the totem pole. Widows especially, they had no one to care for them and let alone, she is not a, an Israelite. She is a Gentile. And the Israelites' mentality of Gentiles, man, it, it is, it's crude, it's wrong, and quite frankly, it's racist. And um, I, I hesitated to, uh, to bring this to your attention, but I think it's, it's really important that we understand the Jews' mindset of how they would have uh, thought about Gentiles. The common phrase that they would have used is that Gentiles were the kingling to hell's fire. And that is a very crude image. Uh, it's, it's wrong, it's racist, uh, but it's what the Jewish people would have thought about the Gentiles. So for Jesus to say that God 
sent his prophet to save uh, basically the lowliest of all people, I mean, this would have been basically to them blasphemous, right? I mean, they would have been just furious. And it's obvious that they were uh, on the reaction here starting in verse 28. But this isn't the only Old Testament reference that Jesus brings up. He also brings up this next one here in verse 27. He says, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, only Nahum the Syrian. Now, this guy, we thought that the first lady was the lowliest, the Gentile widow. We thought that she was like the lowliest, um, this Nahum character. Whoa, I think, <laughs> I mean, it is probably the lowliest character that you could possibly think of. This, is, this was Nahum. He's in 2 Kings chapter 5. We find out right at the beginning of the chapter that he is a commander of the Syrian army. Okay, so not only is he a Gentile, but also he's an enemy. And he's commanding the enemy army against Israel. Okay, so that's bad. Right? Like That's already bad. Um, let's just scoop the final scoop of badness onto Nahum, of the Jewish mindset at least. Uh, he was also a leper. And so he's a very successful commander, but he's a leper. And so the Israelites, I mean, they would have thought basically nothing of this guy. Like he's a complete dirtbag. But what ends up happening is he gets this message. They, they, uh, and, and this is like, I mean, he's the lowliest guy, right? Like he had an Israelite uh, girl in his captivity, and she told him that there was a prophet in her hometown, Elijah, Elisha, that could save him. And so what does he do? He responds out of faith. He goes. Elisha says, hey, you need to go wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And Nahum at first is like really mad. He's like, I came all this way, and all you want me to do is go take seven baths? Like in this nasty river? I got cleaner rivers back home, man. Are you kidding me? But after this momentary anger subsides, he actually goes and he does it. He goes in the Jordan River and he, he bathes himself seven times and his leprosy is cured. What does he do? He responds out of faith. Even though he's a Gentile, even though he's an enemy commander, he responds completely out of faith. Like I said, this was like the lowliest of lowliest people on the Israelites' totem pole. I mean, just super, super low. They would have thought nothing. They would have thought like bad things about this guy. He's a complete dirtbag. He deserves to burn in hell, right? I mean, like all of these horrible, horrible thoughts. And Jesus says, hey, um, you think I'm here for you and to serve your selfish desires and to get what you want out of me as the Messiah? Here's what I'm actually here for. I'm here to save everyone. And because he says this, people get super, super, super upset. So what do we learn from this uh, teaching that Jesus gives to all of the people? Well, first of all, it's evident that they just don't get it, right? It's just evident that they do not understand who Jesus was and what he is there to do. I think we can learn First and foremost, how not to get our faith wrong. How to not get Christianity wrong. Just as these people got Jesus wrong, we don't want to do that. We want to learn from their mistake and say, all right, they fell into this mistake. Um, how do I not do that? The first thing that they do is they make their faith all about themselves, right? They make their faith all about themselves when they say, hey, Jesus, and they don't even get to say it, like Jesus brings it up first. Like, don't even bring up the fact about these miracles in Capernaum. Like, listen, I'm not here to do those things. All they wanted to do was to make their faith about themselves, to make uh, having Jesus around them about 
them. Me, 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 me. And listen, guys, we can say that we don't fall into this camp, but so many times we fall into this camp where we make everything about us. How many times have you heard someone say, you know, I was going to this church and, ah, man, you know, I just, the music wasn't just quite, you know, how I like it. I I don't really like that kind of music, you know, or the, you know, the the pastor's preaching style. Uh, You know, it was solid biblical stuff, but, you know, uh, yeah, it's not really my thing. Or, you know, the kids ministry thing. I don't know. My, my kids like the one, they like the church that's a little bit more fun, right? Like we hear these things and it's all about me, 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 right? And it causes us to have conflicts with people at church because we argue about stupid things like the color of walls or pews or chairs or all of these preferences like the style of music or the order of our services, all of these things, right? And it causes us to have conflict. And we not only have conflict with other people at church, we have conflict with our spouse, right? You're not doing the things that I want you to do. Me, 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 right? You need to change. My boss, he needs to change. My coworkers, they need to change. My neighbors, they need to change, right? It's all about me, 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 what I want to see. I think that's why we have such a big problem with politics right now, right? We can't look at, okay, what's going to be best for everyone? We look at, well, what's going to be best for me? What is going to be best for me? And I'm going to get really, really mad if you think that that's going to be best for me because that's nonsense. The other side of politics, that's nonsense, right? And it causes us to look at God's word and take it out of context even. When we make our faith all about ourselves, we look at God's word and we go, oh, look at that one verse completely taken out of context. That's what I'm going to hold on to and forget about the rest, right? And it's just ridiculous. And it causes us just not to get who Jesus is. It causes us to get Christianity wrong, to not understand why Jesus has come. I like the way that Philippians chapter 2 puts it, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. We cannot make our faith all about us, all about me, 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 me. And if we do, honestly, I think we really miss out on the life that God has for us. We miss out on the glorious calling, the glorious purpose that he has given to us to reach out to people, to tell them about his love and to tell them how to have a relationship with Jesus, right? I mean, we miss out on this. We miss out on jobs when we say, man, you know, I know that, you know, that, that job that I know God, you know, he, he's pushing me towards that. I, I feel him leading me towards that. But you know what? Uh, it just doesn't pay quite enough for me. So, um, you know, I, I just, I, I can't do it. I, I, I got to do what's best for my family, right? Like we make it, ultimately it's just about us, right? Yeah, you probably would make less money. But here's what I guarantee you, that if you follow God's calling in your life, if you follow God's leading in your life, you will le- live a more satisfied life because of it. It's not going to be as easy, sure. It's not going to be the maybe the way that you want it to be, but it's going to be the way that God designed you to live your life. Don't miss out on the life that God has for you because you're constantly focused on yourself. I want to ask you a question again then. What's your prayer life look like? What does your prayer life look like? Is it all about you? And again, those things, those prayers aren't bad, but what what our prayer life is reflects how we think about God. It reflects our relationship with Him. Don't get Christianity wrong. Don't make it about you. 
and miss out on the life that God has for you. Here's the second thing that I think that this, this story of, of Jesus in the synagogue teaches us, and it's, um, it's that we need to realize that Jesus came to offer salvation to all. If you're watching online, sorry, my PowerPoint's, uh, the, the spacing's a little off there. But we need to realize that Jesus came to offer salvation to everyone. Now, he says that he only gives these couple of extreme examples of these Gentiles who the Jewish people would have looked at man, and, and would have said, man, you're, you're worthless, like you're trash, you're garbage, you're kindling for hell's fire, right? Like this is just, this is bad, their mentality of this. And we can often say, oh yeah, I know that Jesus, he offers salvation to all. He died for every single person. And now all anyone has to do is freely accept Jesus' sacrifice. Anybody could do that. We can acknowledge that up here in our heads. But what would it look like to acknowledge that in our hearts? Now, what would it look like to look at someone who is completely politically different from you, completely on the other side of the aisle, Right. If you're Donald Trump, they're Joe Biden. Right. Like completely on the other side of the aisle and say, Jesus died for you just as much as he died for me. How would your life look differently if you truly understood that Jesus not only died for people like you and are similar than you. But that Jesus died for everyone to offer salvation to everyone. In other words, he died just as much for you as he died for that person who you can't stand. That person who maybe you think doesn't deserve salvation. You know, there's a lot of times where we can look at people who maybe are um, criminals, who are violent offenders, sexual offenders, racist criminals. I mean, we, we can look at these people and we go, man, like, Oh, man, oh, man, that's, that's a hard person to deal with. Like, I'm kind of glad that they're in jail or things like that. But it's pretty difficult to say, man, Jesus died as much for you as he died for me. Like, that's difficult to, to really grasp. But how would your life look differently if you truly understood that? Like, what, how would that change the conversations that, you're, that you have with people? You know, maybe it would change the comments that you put on Facebook. Maybe it would, it would change the type of conversations that you choose to get into. Maybe it would change the type of arguments that you have with family members if you realize, hmm, Jesus died just as much for my crazy uncle who is into conspiracies and all of the nonsense and, you know, is just completely led astray. He, like, Jesus died just as much for him as he died for me. So, like, how does that change my conversation with him? Well, maybe it means that we don't argue about all of those things quite as much. And we focus more so on, are people saved? Are they growing in their relationship with Jesus? You know, so many times we can get sidetracked by all of these crazy things that are happening. And I think the enemy loves that, right? The enemy just loves to pull us astray and say, oh, look at that crazy thing that's happening on the news right now, right? Oh, look at that crazy thing. And you better have an opinion on it. And you better fight people who have the opposite opinion on that because they're wrong, right? And you almost have this like righteous anger about us, right? Like, yeah, they're wrong. And so I got to prove them right, right? And we lose track of the fact that, man, maybe God put me in their life, the people who I can't stand, maybe God put them in my life so that I can reach out to them and show them the gracious love that God showed to me. And that's hard. You know, there's going to be people 
who wrong us. There's going to be people who are complete jerks to us, who do horrible things to us. And we've got to look at those people and say, man, if Jesus forgave me, right? And Jesus is completely perfect. I mean, if there's anyone that shouldn't be forgiving towards people, it's the perfect one, right? And yet God is forgiving towards us. So we ought to extend that forgiveness to others. If we've truly accepted that, if we truly accept what Jesus has done for us, we realize that he came to offer salvation to everyone, including the people who we think are just complete dirtbags. Because for these Jewish people sitting in the audience that Jesus is talking to, they think these Gentiles that Jesus is bringing up in the Old Testament that responded out of faith, and, and, and Jesus saying, man, God, God sent the prophet to specifically for those people to save those people, right? Like, they thought that those people were dirtbags. Who do you think is a dirtbag and doesn't deserve Jesus? Who do you maybe need to reevaluate how you think about that person? Right? Because we know this from 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Look at this. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If God Almighty, in, in his, all of His splendor and glory and perfection, can look at the lowliest of all people, at the worst violent or sexual offender, and say, I don't want you to die in hell. I want you to live with me forever, and I want to forgive you from what you've done. If God in all of his perfection and splendor can say, I forgive you, then we in our own sinful nature can say, yeah, you know what? I need to forgive you too. Because if Jesus has forgiven me, then I need to extend that forgiveness to others. Just as Jesus prays, prays uh, to his heavenly Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane, says, uh, God, forgive me as I forgive those who trespass against me, right? Like, we need to forgive those who have wronged us and who have wronged society, and we have just completely written off. I think that this story tells us that, that we need to realize that Jesus came to offer salvation at all. Here's the third point, and I'm sorry about the formatting for the computer here, but our focus needs to be the same as Christ. As Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, he's teaching this and saying, hey, here's my focus. These people are so upset with it, are so mad at what Jesus says that they're literally ready to kill him, to push him off a cliff and to cause him to die, right? Like they are so upset with him. Their focus clearly is not the same as Jesus's focus. And for all of us, we have got to align our focuses on Christ. And we've got to guard our heart against hatred, right? We've got to guard our heart to say, man, there are some people, there's a group of people, or maybe even uh, people who hold certain ideologies that, man, I just do not agree with. And I have the tendency to just simply just write them off and to hate them and to clump them all together as a group and to just, man, I just, ah, man, I just can't stand those people, right? What group of people can you not stand? What individual have you completely written off in your mind? And you're just saying, man, they don't even deserve Jesus, right? They don't even deserve my time of day. They don't deserve anything because of what they've done. Again, if there's anyone who deserves to have that mentality, it's God. And he chooses not to have that mentality towards any of us. And if God can, have, can choose to say, I'm not going to have that mentality 
then we need to as well. Our focus needs to be the same as Jesus' focus. Now, what is that focus? Well, we know that when Jesus is asked, what is the most important commandment that his answer is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And before he leaves earth, uh, for, uh, after he is resurrected and he spent time with his disciples, before he ascends to heaven, he says, go therefore, make disciples, baptize them, teach them in my ways, right? And so I think our focus needs to be loving God, loving others, and making disciples. That is what it looks like to have our focus the same as Christ's. And when our faith looks like it's all about us, guys, let me tell you, our focus is completely in the wrong areas. And when we look at someone and go, man, I, you, yeah, pff, man, yeah, good riddance to you. Like, I hope you burn in hell, right? Like, if we, if we look at someone like that, our focus clearly is not the same as Christ. Because as we learn from 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not slow as some count slowness, but uh, is patient that all would reach repentance, that not one should perish, that no one should perish, but that everyone come into a loving relationship with Him. Our focus has to be like that. Our focus has to be loving God, loving others, and making disciples. And it's just saying, going out and saying, you know what? I'm not going to make my faith all about me. Right? The dominating prayer of my life is not going to be about me. Again, those aren't bad prayers, but it does reveal our heart towards God. It does reveal our relationship and how we think about God. And so I'm going to start praying for those people who God put in my life, who maybe I have a difficult time reaching out to. I have a difficult time even talking to sometimes because of the junk that they've done. Right, We have got to realize that God came for all, that God died for that person who you can't stand just as much as he died for you. And to fix our focus on him and his mission of making disciples. So let me ask you, who's God been putting on your heart? As we've talked about this, and we talked about how God has died, Jesus has died for every single one of us. Who's God put on your heart? Who's God put on your heart? Who have you written off? Who have you said good riddance to? Who have you written off to say, man, they don't even deserve my time of day? How could you reach out to them? Because Jesus died just as much for them as he died for you. How can you reach out to them? How can you show everyone you encounter God's love, the gracious love that he has shown to every single one of us? If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been forgiven. How can you extend that forgiveness to those people who you can't stand? There's some reflection questions, and again, I encourage you to look those up on the Uverse Bible app or our online bulletin. Just spend some time with those. And really ask God, man, how can I reach out to those people? How can I reach out to who you've put in my life? who I've completely written off. Because if God can forgive us, he can forgive them too. And so can we. Let me pray for you. God, we just thank you so much for, man, just your gracious forgiveness that you've given to every single one of us, for your mercy, for the grace that you had in offering us a brand new life, a transformed life. God, I just, I, I pray for every single one of us as, 
as I know that you've put people on each and every one of our hearts to reach out to. God, I, I pray for patience. I pray that we can extend, extend that same mercy and that same grace that you offer to us onto them. Help us to do that. Help us not to fall in the same trap as these Israelites fell into in the synagogue. As they thought about these Gentiles who your prophets came and, and they uh, responded in faith, God, and they just had a horrible attitude towards these. I pray that we would never have that same attitude. I pray that we would never look at someone and it would cause us to get so angry that we're ready to kill someone. God, would you help us? Give us patience. Give us grace. Give us mercy when we mess up. Help us to extend that same grace and mercy to every single person around us, especially those who we really have a hard time with. God, I just pray that we would be open to your leading. As you lead us to reach out to people, we would be open to that, that you would soften our hearts. Many of our hearts have become hardened towards certain people, God. I pray that you would soften those, those hearts. I pray that you'd soften our hearts. Soften the hearts of the people who we're to reach out to. Prepare them for your word. Give us divine opportunity to reach out to them, to have conversations, and give us the words to say when we do. And Jesus, ultimately, help us to love others just as much as you've loved each and every one of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of Bursting forth in glory and 
Thanks again for joining us. Again, I really encourage you to take a look at those reflection questions. You can find it in the description of wherever you're finding this. Spend some time with the Lord. Ask Him to soften your heart to those people who you cannot stand, who you are just super upset with, and, help, uh, and, and ask Him to help you to reach out to those people. I know that's difficult. I know that that could be really, really hard, but it's really important. And it's really important if we're not going to get Christianity wrong, if we're not going to get our faith wrong and miss out on what God has for each and every one of us. We want to help you to get it right. We want to help you to live the life that God designed you to live. So if you need a space to talk about those questions with someone, really encourage you. We've got a, a small group program it's happening online right now just because of COVID. But we really encourage you, if you need a space, we'd love to get you involved with that. Uh, just reach out to us. Let us know that you want to be involved, and we'll get you the information for that. We love you. Have a great week, and we'll see you next weekend.